everyone. Welcome back to Vintage Sidecar, a voice actor's venture. Nope, that's not the one <laughs> where we shed some light on classic lit. Uh, Jade Dragon, Vish, Gwen, I'm glad y'all are here. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, let's talk a spot of review. Now, this time, the short one for the recording. John Watson is a recently retired army doctor uh, looking for something to fill his time. He's desperately bored looking for something to do, uh, and he needs to stretch his money out a little bit, so he takes on a roommate. He and uh, a new sort of friend of a friend, Sherlock Holmes, have rented an apartment together. The two of them uh, living together provide one another with some things that each one sort of needs pretty desperately. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is kind of hurting for a companion because he's he can be abrasive, um, he can be challenging to get along with, hard to connect with, um, and then of course Dr. Watson is looking for something to fill his time. Um, he needs something to focus on, and with Sherlock Holmes, he's always got it. Sherlock Holmes is a consulting detective, uh, not, a dete not a police detective, not a private investigator, but a consulting detective, and he is brought on for his first case in which John Watson is present, uh, and he invites John to sort of come with him and see what this is all about. Um, more insists than invites. They arrive at a crime scene, wherein the word R-A-C-H-E, rash, or as one of the one of the uh, Scotland Yard detectives erroneously surmises the beginning of the word Rachel. Of course, Rache, uh, as Sherlock points out, is the German word for revenge. What would this mean? Why would it be here? Why does this dead body have so much blood around it and yet no stab wounds? And finally, why does this body have a ring in the pocket? Well, the... the uh, detectives Lestrade and uh, and for whatever reason cannot keep his name in my head Gregson Gregson and Lestrade Lestrade and Gregson um, uh, Gregson Lestrade they've both got their own theories they've both, both got their own suspects and uh, they are both hot on the trails of those suspects when one of them is murdered proving both of their theories wrong they go to that second crime scene and Sherlock finds uh, some pills there um, as we come back to the apartment, 221B Baker Street, Sherlock has, of course, Watson um, listening in on this, this whole conversation as Gregson and Lestrade try to go over why things have gone like they've gone. And, well, Sherlock, if you've got the solution already, why won't you just tell us? Well, he's still got some things in the works. Uh, and so he reveals that uh, these pills that he found, he suspects them to be poison. He draws one out. It's not poison. Then, uh, in spite of the fact that he gets very depressed very quickly, he says, aha, wait a moment. He tries a second pill and says, of course, only half of them are poison. Um, we don't know what this means yet or why that would be, but uh, what we do know is the plans that he has in place. Um, he's about to go on a little trip. He's got some luggage there nearby. He asks one of his young street urchin lads to go and fetch uh, the cabbie from downstairs so the cabbie can help him load his bags in. And upon the cabbie arriving in the apartment, Sherlock slaps some cuffs on him and introduces him as Mr. Jefferson Hope, the murderer of Enoch Dreber and Joseph Stangerson. That's where we're at. The very last line in this, uh, Sherlock Holmes says, We have his cab. It will serve to take him to Scotland Yard. And now, gentlemen, 
we have reached the end of our little mystery. You are very welcome to put any questions that you like to me now, and there is no danger that I will refuse to answer them. That's where we are at. I do hope that uh, you've got your snacks, you little raccoons, and I do hope that you will enjoy part two of Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. Part 2, The Country of the Saints, Chapter 1, On the Great Alkali Plain. In the central portion of the great North American continent there lies an arid and repulsive desert, which for many a long year served as a barrier against the advance of civilization. From the Sierra Nevada to Nebraska, and from the Yellowstone River to the north to the Colorado upon the south, is a region of desolation and silence. Nor is nature always in one mood throughout this grim district. It comprises snow-capped and lofty mountains, dark and gloomy valleys. There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged canyons. There are enormous plains which in winter are white with snow and in summer are gray with saline alkali dust. They all preserve, however, the common characteristics of barrenness, inhospitality, and misery. There are no inhabitants of this plain of despair. A band of Pawnees or of Blackfeet may occasionally traverse it in order to reach their hunting grounds, but the hardiest of the Braves are glad to lose sight of these awesome plains and to find themselves once more upon their prairies. The coyote stalks among the scrub, the buzzard flaps heavily through the air, and the clumsy grizzly bear lumbers through the dark ravines and picks up such sustenance as it can amongst the rocks. These are the sole dwellers in the wilderness. In the whole world, there can be no more dreary view than that from the northern slope of the Sierra Blanco. As far as the eye can reach stretches the great plain flatland, all dusted over with patches of alkali and intersected by clumps of the dwarfish chaparral bushes. In the extreme verge of the horizon lie a long chain of mountain peaks, with their rugged summits flecked with snow. In this great stretch of country, there is no sign of life, nor anything appertaining to life. There is no bird in the steel-blue heaven, no movement upon the dull gray earth. Above all, there is absolute silence. Listen as one may, there is no shadow of a sound in all that mighty wilderness. Nothing but silence. Complete and heart-subduing silence. It's said there's been nothing appertaining to life upon the broad plain. That's hardly true. Looking down from the Sierra Blanco, one sees a pathway traced out across the desert which winds away and is lost in the extreme distance. It is rutted with wheels and trodden down by the feet of many adventurers. Here and there are scattered white objects which glisten in the sun and stand out against the dull deposit of alkali. Approach and examine them. They are bones. Some large and coarse, others smaller and more delicate. The former have belonged to oxen, the latter to men. For 1,500 miles, one may trace this ghastly caravan route by these scattered remains of those who had fallen by the wayside. Looking down on this very scene, there stood upon the 4th of May, 1847, a solitary traveler. 
His appearance was such that he might have been the very genius or demon of the region. An observer would have found it difficult to say whether he was nearer to forty or to sixty. His face was lean and haggard, and the brown, parchment-like skin was drawn tightly over the projecting bones. His long, brown hair and beard were all flecked and dashed up with white. His eyes were sunken in his head and burned with an unnatural luster. While the hand which grasped his rifle was hardly more fleshy than that of a skeleton. As he stood, he leaned upon his weapon for support, and yet his tall figure and the massive framework of his bones suggested a wiry and vigorous constitution. His gaunt face, however, and his clothes, which hung so baggily over his shriveled limbs, proclaimed what it was gave him that senile and decrepit appearance. The man was dying. Dying from hunger and from thirst. He had toiled painfully down the ravine, and onto this little elevation in the vain hope of seeing some signs of water. Now the great salt plain stretched before his eyes in the distant belt of savage mountains, without a sign anywhere of plant or tree which might indicate the presence of moisture. In all that broad landscape there was no gleam of hope. North and east and west, he looked with wild, questioning eyes. And then he realized what his surroundings had come to, to an end, and that there on that barren crag, he was about to die. Why not here? as well as in a feather bed twenty years hence, he muttered, as he seated himself in the shelter of a boulder. Before sitting down, he had deposited upon the ground his useless rifle and also a large bundle tied up in a gray shawl which he had carried slung over his right shoulder. It appeared to be somewhat too heavy for his strength, for in lowering it it came to the ground with some little violence. Instantly there broke from the great parcel a little moaning cry, and from it there protruded a small, scared face, and very bright brown eyes, and two little speckled, dimpled fists. You hurt me, said a childish voice reproachfully. Have I, though? The man answered penitently. I didn't go for to do it. As he spoke, he unwrapped the gray shawl and extricated a pretty little girl of about five years of age, whose dainty shoes and smart pink frock with its little linen apron all bespoke a mother's care. The child was pale and wan, but her healthy arms and legs showed she had suffered less than her companion. "'How is it now?' he answered anxiously, for she was still rubbing on the towsy golden curls which had covered the back of her head. Kiss it, make it well, she said, with perfect gravity, shoving the injured part up to him. That's what Mother used to do. Where's Mother? Mother's gone. I guess you'll see her before long. Gone? Hmm, said the little girl. Funny. She didn't say goodbye. She most always did that if she was just going over to Auntie's for tea. And now she's been away for three days. Say, it's awful dry, ain't it? Ain't there no water? No nothing to eat? No. No, there ain't nothing, dearie. You'll just need to be patient a while, then you'll be all right. Put your head up again like that, and you'll feel bullier. 
it ain't easy to talk when your lips is like leather, but I guess I'd best let you know how the cards lie. What's that you got there? Pretty things. Fine things, cried the little girl enthusiastically, holding up two glittering fragments of mica. When we goes back home, I'll give them to Brother Bob. You'll see prettier things in them soon, the man said confidently. You just... Wait a bit. I was going to tell you, though. You remember when we left the river? Oh, yes. Well, we reckoned we'd strike another river soon, you see. But there was something wrong. Compasses or map or something, and it didn't turn up. Water ran out. Just accept a little drop for the likes of you, and, and, um... And you couldn't wash yourself? Interrupted his companion gravely, staring up at the grimy visage. No, nor drink. And Mr. Bender, he was the first to go, and then Indian Pete, and then Mrs. McGregor, and then Johnny Hones, and then... Deary... Your mother. The mother's a debtor, too? Cried the little girl, dropping her face in her pinafore and sobbing bitterly. Yeah. They all went. Except you and me. And then I, I thought there was some chance of water in this direction. So I heaved you over my shoulder and we tramped it together. Don't seem as though we've improved matters. There's an almighty small chance for us now. You mean we're going to die too? Asked the child, checking her sobs and raising her tear-stained face. <sighs> I guess that's about the size of it. Why didn't you say so before? She said, laughing gleefully. You gave me such a fright. Well, of course now, as long as we die, we'll be with Mother again. Yeah, you will, dearie. And you too. I'll tell her how awful good you've been. I bet she meets us at the door of heaven with a big pitcher of water and lots of buckwheat cakes, hot and toasted on both sides like me and Bob was fond of. How long will it be first? I don't know. I don't know. Not very long. The man's eyes were fixed upon the northern horizon. In the blue vault of heaven there had appeared three little specks, which increased in size every moment, so rapidly did they approach. They speedily resolved themselves into three large brown birds which circled over the heads of the two wanderers and then settled down upon some rocks which overlooked them. They were buzzards, the vultures of the west, whose coming is the forerunner of death. Cocks and hens, cried the little girl gleefully, pointing at their ill-omened forms and clapping her hands to make them rise. Say, did God make this country? Of course he did, said her companion, rather startled by the unexpected question. 
the country down in Illinois. He made the Missouri. The little girl continued. I guess somebody else made the country in these parts. It's not nearly so well done. They forgot the water and the trees. What would you think of offering up a prayer? The man asked diffidently. It ain't not yet, she answered. Don't matter. It ain't quite regular, but he won't mind that, you bet. You say over them ones that you used to say every night in the wagon when we was on the plains. Why don't you say some yourself? The child asked with wondering eyes. I disremember them, he answered. I ain't said none since I was half the height of that gun. Guess it's never too late. You say I'm out and I'll stand by and come in on the choruses. Then you need to kneel down too, she said, laying the shawl out for that purpose. Gotta put your hands up like this. It makes you feel kind of good. It was a strange sight, had there been anything but buzzards there to see it. Side by side in the narrow shawl knelt the two wanderers, the little prattling child and the reckless, hardened adventurer. Her chubby face and his haggard, angular visage were both turned up to the cloudless heaven and heartfelt entreaty to that dread being with whom they were about to face, while the two voices, one thin and clear, the other deep and harsh, united in the entreaty for mercy and forgiveness. The prayer finished. They resumed their seat in the shadow of the boulder until the child fell asleep, nestling upon the broad breast of her protector. He watched over her slumber for some time, but nature proved too strong for him. For three days and three nights he had allowed himself neither rest nor repose. Slowly the eyelids drooped over the tired eyes, and the head sunk lower and lower upon the breast until the man's grizzled beard was mixed with gold tresses of his companion, and both slept the same deep and dreamless slumber. Had the wanderer remained awake for another half hour, a strange sight would have met his eyes. Far away on the extreme verge of the alkali plain there rose a little spray of dust, very slight at first and hardly to be distinguished from the mists of the distance, but gradually growing higher and broader until it formed a solid, well-defined cloud. This cloud continued to increase in size until it became evident that it could only be raised by a great multitude of moving creatures. In more fertile spots, the observer would have come to the conclusion that it was one of those great herds of bison which graze upon the prairie land. This was obviously impossible with these arid wilds, as the whirl of dust drew nearer to the solitary bluff upon which the two castaways were reposing, the canvas-covered tilts of wagons, and the figures of armed horsemen began to show up through the haze, and the apparition revealed itself as being a great caravan upon its journey for the west. But what a caravan! When the head of it reached the base of the mountains, the rear was not yet visible on the horizon. Right across the enormous plain stretched the straggling array, wagons and carts, men on horseback and men on foot, innumerable women who staggered along under burdens, and children who toddled along beside the wagons or peeped out from under the white coverings. This was evidently no ordinary party of immigrants, but rather some nomad people who had been compelled from stress of circumstance to seek themselves a new country. 
There rose through the air a confused clattering and rumbling from amidst this great mass of humanity, with the creaking of wheels and the neighing of horses. Loud as it was, it was not sufficient to rouse the two tired wayfarers above them. At the head of the column there rode a score or more of grave, iron-faced men, clad in somber homespun garments and armed with rifles. On reaching the base of the bluff, they halted and held a short council amongst themselves. "'The wells are to the right, my brothers,' said one, a hard-lipped, clean-shaven man with grisly hair. "'To the right of the Sierra Blanco, so we shall reach the Rio Grande,' said another. "'Fear not for water,' cried a third. "'He who could draw it from the rocks will not now abandon his own chosen people.' "'Amen!' "'Amen!' responded the whole party. They were about to resume their journey when one of the youngest and keenest eyed uttered an exclamation and pointed up at the rugged crag above them. From its summit there fluttered a little wisp of pink, showing up hard and bright against the gray rocks behind. At the sight there was a general reining up of horses and unslinging of guns while fresh horsemen came galloping up to reinforce the vanguard. Hmm. There can't be any number of Indians here, said the elderly man who appeared in command. We've passed the Pawnees, and there are no other tribes till we cross the great mountains. Shall I go forward and see, Brother Stangerson? asked one of the band. And I, and I, cried a dozen voices. Leave your horses below, and we'll await you here, the elder answered. In a moment, the young fellows had dismounted, fastened their horses, and were ascending the precipitous slope which led up to the object which had excited their curiosity. They advanced rapidly and noiselessly, with the confidence and dexterity of practiced scouts. The watchers from the plain below them could see them flit from rock to rock until their figures stood out against the skyline. The young man who had first given alarm was leading them. Suddenly his followers saw him throw up his hands as though overcome with astonishment, and on joining him they were affected in the same way by the sight which met their eyes. On the little plateau which crowned the barren hill there stood a single giant boulder, and against this boulder there lay a tall man, long-bearded and hard-featured, but of an excess thinness. His placid face and regular breathing showed that he was fast asleep. Beside him lay a little child with her round white arms encircling his brown sinewy neck and her golden-haired head resting upon the breast of his velveteen tunic. Her rosy lips were parted, showing the regular line of snow-white teeth within, and a playful smile played over her infantile features. Her plump little white legs terminating in white socks and neat shoes with shining buckles offered a strange contrast to the long, shriveled members of her companion. On the ledge of rock up above this strange couple there stood three solemn buzzards, who, at the sight of the newcomers, uttered raucous screams of disappointment and flapped sullenly away. The cries of the foul birds awoke the two sleepers who stared about them in bewilderment. The man staggered to his feet and looked down upon the plain which had been so desolate when sleep had overtaken him, and which was now traversed by this enormous body of men and of beasts. His face assumed an expression of incredulity, and he gazed as he passed his bony hand over his eyes. This is what they call delirium, I guess, he muttered. The child stood beside him, 
holding on to the skirt of his coat, and said nothing but looked all around her with the wondering, questioning gaze of childhood. The rescuing party were speedily able to convince the two castaways that their appearance was no delusion. One of them seized the little girl and hoisted her upon his shoulder, while the other two supported her gaunt companion, and assisted them toward the wagons. "'My name is John Ferrier,' the wanderer explained. "'Me and that little one are all that's left of, uh, twenty-one people. "'The rest is all dead of thirst and hunger away down in the south.' "'Is she your child?' asked someone. "'Guess she is now,' the other cried defiantly. "'She's mine because I saved her, and no man will take her from me. "'She's Lucy Ferrier from this day on.' "'Who are you, though?' he continued, "'glancing with curiosity at this stalwart, sunburned rescuing party. "'There seems to be a powerful lot of you.' "'Nigh upon ten thousand said one of the young men. We are the persecuted children of God, the chosen of the angel Morona. I never heard tell on him, said the wanderer. He appears to have chosen a fair crowd of you. Do not dress that which is sacred, said the other sternly. We're of those who believe in those sacred writings drawn in Egyptian letters on plates of beaten gold who were handed under the holy Joseph Smith at Palmyra. We've come here from Nauvoo in the state of Illinois, where we have founded our temple. We've come to seek a refuge from the violent man and from the godless, even though it be in the heart of the desert. The name of Nauvoo evidently recalled recollections to John Ferrier. I see, he said. You are the Mormons. We are the Mormons, answered his companions with one voice. Where are you going? We do not know. The hand of God is leading us under the person of our prophet. You must come before him. He shall say what is to be done with you. They had reached the base of the hill by this time and were surrounded by crowds of the pilgrims. Pale-faced, meek-looking women, strong, laughing children, and anxious, earnest-eyed men. Many were the cries of astonishment and of commiseration which arose from them when they perceived the youth, one of the strangers, and the destitution of the other. Their escort did not halt, however, but pushed on, followed by a great crowd of Mormons, until they reached a wagon, which was conspicuous for its size and for the gaudiness and smartness of its appearance. Six horses were yoked to it, whereas the others were furnished with two, or at most, four apiece. Beside the driver there sat a man who could not have been more than thirty years of age but whose massive head and resolute expression marked him as a leader. He was reading a brown-backed volume, but as the crowd approached, he laid it aside and listened attentively to an account of the episode. Then he turned to the two castaways. "'If we take you with us,' he said in solemn words, "'it can only be as believers in our own creed. "'We shall have no wolves in our fold.' Far better that your bones should bleach out in this wilderness than you should prove to be that little speck of decay which in time corrupts the whole fruit. Will you come with us on those terms? Guess I'll come with you on any terms, said Farrier, with such emphasis that the grave elders could not restrain a smile. The leader alone retained his stern, impressive expression. Take him. "'Brother Stangerson,' he said. 
Give him food and drink, and the child likewise. Let it be your task also to teach him our holy creed. We've delayed long enough. Forward, on, on to Zion. On, on to Zion, cried the crowd of Mormons. And the words rippled down the long caravan, passing from mouth to mouth until they died away in a dull murmur in the far distance. With a cracking of whips and a creaking of wheels, the great wagons got into motion, and soon the whole caravan was winding away once more. The elder, to whose care the two waifs had been committed, led them to his wagon, where a meal was already awaiting them. "'You shall remain here,' he said. "'In a few days you will have recovered from your fatigues. "'In the meantime, remember now and forever that you are of our religion.' Brigham Young has said it, and he has spoken with the voice of Joseph Smith, which is the voice of God. Well, folks, what do you think of all that? And I will remind you that contemporary to this time, jazz was just starting to spin up down in other parts of the U.S. <laughs> all right, my friends, what do we think? That is chapter one out of the four that I plan to read today. I want to say I was planning to do four. Let me check my notes here. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Because that'll give us that'll give us an eleven thousand day, which is today, and then next week will be a ten thousand day, and then we have read the entire book. What do y'all think of that? That's right, just just knocking out this whole book in four episodes. That's not bad, gang. Because the whole thing is hold on, how long? What's the total word count? Uh, let's see, forty three thousand two hundred. About about forty three point three thousand. Not bad. Vish says, so are we in Utah or heading that way? Um, it's a good question. We're going to be learning a bit more about that in the next chapter. Um, so never you fear. It's coming up. Don't you worry. Um, this is, of course, Sidecar Stories. I am, of course, Sam, and this is Tuesday. So, of course, this is Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. We have just caught up to... The very first part of the sort of explanation. I think we are to understand that this is Sherlock Holmes explaining uh, as as Watson and Gregson. Ah, I remembered it this time. And Le Lestrade. Ooh, it almost... <laughs> Gregson almost just pushed Lestrade's name clean out the other ear for me. Um, uh, uh, we are probably sort of listening as they ask questions and he sort of relays the overall story of what has happened here and all that goodness which is why we seem to have taken such a hard spin you know the last thing that we saw from the last chapter was hey uh this is jefferson hope he is the murderer of these two men enoch drebber and joseph stangerson why can't i remember those names um and uh y'all can feel free to ask me any questions that you wish dot 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 part two chapter one the American West. 
<laughs> right? We where's Sherlock? Where's hold on? Which which one of these people is Watson? Are they, are they in disguises? What's that? No, none of it. Um, we've taken such a hard right turn here. Uh, so far, we don't have any names that we uh, we we we. Well, I think we do have a couple of names that we recognize, don't we? I think we've got one name that we recognize, but it was only mentioned in passing, so keep an eye out for some of these names here. Um, I think, without much further ado, let's roll on into our next chapter here. Uh, Orly Rose says, I know uh, I know where this goes, but I completely forgot the impact uh, with which he tells this story. It's so different to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, this is good. My, my throat is actually feeling a little bit better as I read on. I think I might have just slept with the window open or something. All right, folks. Um, I'll chuck a quick chatterbreak question at you. Um, where do we think all this is going? What do we? Where do we think this is headed? It's a hard time to ask that question, but I'm asking it nonetheless. There you go. Everyone, we're in part two. We're across the ocean in the United States. Why? Let's find out. Part 2, Chapter 2, The Flower of Utah This is not the place to commemorate the trials and privations endured by the immigrant Mormons before they came to their final haven. From the shores of the Mississippi to the western slopes of the Rocky Mountains, they had struggled on with a constancy almost unparalleled in history. The savage man and the savage beast, hunger, thirst, fatigue, and disease... Every impediment which nature could place in their way had all been overcome with Anglo-Saxon tenacity. Ooh, that's white. Good lord. Yet the long journey and accumulated terrors had shaken the hearts of the stoutest among them. There was not one who did not sink upon his knees in heartfelt prayer when they saw the broad valley of Utah bathed in the sunlight beneath them and learned from the lips of their leader that this was the promised land, and that these virgin acres were to be theirs forevermore. Young speedily proved himself to be a skillful administrator as well as resolute chief. Maps were drawn and charts prepared, in which the future city was stretched out. All around, farms were apportioned and allotted in proportion to the standing of each individual. The tradesman was put up in his trade and the artisan to his calling. In the town, streets and squares sprang up as if by magic. In the country, there was draining and hedging, planting and clearing, until the next summer saw the whole country golden with the wheat crops. Everything prospered in this strange settlement. Above all, the great temple which they had erected in the center of the city grew taller and taller. From the first blush of dawn until the closing at twilight, the clatter of the hammer and the rasp of the saw was never absent from the monument which the immigrants erected to him who had led them safe through many dangers. The two castaways, John Ferrier and the little girl who had shared his fortunes and had been adopted as his daughter, accompanied the Mormons to the end of their great pilgrimage. Little Lucy Ferrier was born along pleasantly enough in Elder Stangerson's wagon, a retreat which she shared with the Mormons' three wives and his son, a headstrong forward boy of twelve. Having rallied with the elasticity of childhood from the shock caused by her mother's death, she soon became a pet with the woman and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving, canvas-colored home. I did it 
a two times, and reconciled herself to this new life in her moving, canvas-covered home. In the meantime, Ferrier had recovered from his privations, distinguishing himself as a useful guide and indefatigable hunter. So rapidly did he gain the esteem of his new companions that when they reached the end of their wanderings, it was unanimously agreed that he should be provided with as large and as fertile a tract of land as any of the settlers, with the exception of Young himself, and of Stangerson, Campbell, Johnston, and Drebber, who were the four principal elders. On the farm thus acquired, John Ferrier built himself a substantial log house, which received so many additions in succeeding years that it grew to a roomy villa. He was a man of practical turn of mind, keen in his dealings and skillful with his hands. His iron constitution enabled him to work morning and evening in improving and tilling his lands. Hence it came about that his farm, and all that belonged to him, prospered exceedingly. In three years he was better off than his neighbors. In six he was well-to-do, in nine he was rich, and in twelve there were not a half-dozen men in the whole of Salt Lake City who could compare with him. From the great inland sea to the distant Wasatch Mountains there was no name better known than that of John Ferrier. There was one way, and only one way, in which he offended the susceptibilities of his co-religionists. No argument or persuasion could ever induce him to set up a female establishment after the manner of his companions. He never gave reasons for this persistent refusal, but contented himself by resolutely and inflexibly adhering to its termination. There were some who accused him of lukewarmness in his adopted religion, and others who put it down to greed of wealth and reluctance to incur expense. Others, again, spoke of some early love affair and of a fair-haired girl who had pined away on the shores of the Atlantic. Whatever the reason, Ferrier remained strictly celibate. In every other respect, he conformed to the religion of the young settlement and gained the name of being an orthodox and straight-walking man. Lucy Ferrier grew up within the log house and assisted her adopted father in all the undertakings. The keen air of the mountains and the balsamic odor of the pine trees took the place of nurse and mother to the young child. As year succeeded year, she grew taller and stronger, her cheek more ruddy, her step more elastic. Many a wayfarer along the high road ran by Ferrier's farm felt long-forgotten thoughts revive in their mind as they watched her girlish figure tripping through the wheatlands and met her upon her father's mustang and managed it with all the ease and grace of a true child of the West. So the bud blossomed into a flower and the year which saw her father the richest of all the farmers left her as fair a specimen of American girlhood as could be found in the whole Pacific Slope. It was not her father, however, who first discovered that the child had developed into the woman. It seldom is in such cases. That mysterious change is too subtle and too gradual to be measured by dates. Least of all does the maiden herself know it until the tone of a voice or the touch of a hand sets her heart thrilling within her, and she learns, with a mixture of pride and fear, that a new and larger nature has awoken within her. There are few who cannot recall that day and remember the little one incident which heralded the dawn of a new life. In the case of Lucy Ferrier, the occasion was serious enough in itself, apart from its future influence on her destiny— and that of many besides. It was a warm June morning. 
and the Latter-day Saints were as busy as the bees whose hive they had chosen for their emblem. In the fields and in the streets rose the same hum of human industry. Down the dusty high roads defiled long streams of heavily laden mules, all heading for the west, for the gold fever that had broken out in California, and the overland route lay through the city of the elect. There, too, were droves of sheep and bullocks coming from the outlying pasture lands, and trains of tired immigrants, men and horses equally weary of their interminable journey. Through all this motley assemblage, threading her way with the skill of an accomplished rider, there galloped Lucy Ferrier, her fair face flushed with the exercise and her long chestnut hair floating out behind her. She had a commission from her father in the city, and was dashing in as she had done many times before, and with the fearlessness of youth, thinking only of her task and how it was to be performed. The travel-stained adventurers gazed upon her in astonishment, and even the unemotional Native Americans, journeying with their pelties, relaxed with their accustomed stoicism as they marveled at the beauty of the pale-faced maiden. She had reached the outskirts of the city when she found the road blocked by a great drove of cattle, driven by a half-dozen wild-looking herdsmen from the plains. In her impertinence, she endeavored to pass the obstacle by pushing her horse into what appeared to be a gap. Scarcely she had got fairly into it, however, before the beast closed in behind her, and she found herself completely embedded in the moving stream of fierce-eyed, long-horned bullocks. Accustomed as she was to dealing with cattle, she was not alarmed at her situation, but took advantage of every opportunity to urge her horse in the hopes of pushing her way through the cavalcade. Unfortunately, the horns of one of the creatures, either by accident or design, came in violent contact with the flank of the mustang and excited it to madness. In an instant, it reared up upon its hind legs with a snort of rage and pranced and tossed in a way that would have unseated any but the most skillful rider. The situation was full of peril. Every plunge of the excited horse brought it again close to the horns and goaded it into fresh madness. It was all the girl could do to keep herself in the saddle. Yet a slip would mean a terrible death under the hooves of unwieldy and terrified animals. Unaccustomed to sudden emergencies, her head began to swim and the grip upon her bridle began to relax. Choked by the rising cloud of dust and the steam from the struggling creatures, she might have abandoned her efforts in despair, but for a kindly voice at her elbow which assured her of assistance. At the same moment, a sinewy brown hand caught the frightened horse by the curb, forced its way through the drove, and soon brought her to the outskirts. "'You're not hurt, I hope, miss,' said her preserver, respectfully. She looked up at his dark, fierce face and laughed saucily. "'I'm awful frightened,' she said naively. "'Whoever would have thought that Poncho would have been so scared by a lot of cows?' "'Thank God you kept your seat,' the other said earnestly. He was a tall, savage-looking young fellow, mounted on a powerful rowan horse and clad in the rough dress of a hunter, with a long rifle slung over his shoulders. "'I guess that you're the daughter of John Ferrier,' he remarked. "'I saw you ride down from his house. "'When you see him, ask him if he remembers the Jefferson Hopes of St. Louis.' If he's the same farrier, my father and he were pretty thick. Hadn't you better come and ask him yourself? The girl asked demurely. The young fellow seemed pleased at the suggestion, and his dark eyes sparkled with pleasure. I'll do so, he said. We've been in the mountains for two months and are not over and above in visiting condition. He must take us as he finds us. 
He's got a good deal to thank you for, and so have I, she answered. He's awful fond of me. If those cows had jumped on me, he'd have never got over it. Neither would I, said her companion. You? Well, I don't see that it would make much matter to you, anyhow. You ain't even a friend of ours. The young hunter's dark face grew so gloomy over this remark that Lucy Ferrier laughed aloud. Oh, there, I don't mean that. Of course you're a friend now. You must come and see us. Now, i got to push along and my father won't trust me with his business anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye, he answered, raising his broad sombrero and bending over her little hand. She wheeled her Mustang around to give it a cut with her riding whip and darted away down the broad road in a rolling cloud of dust. Young Jefferson Hope rode on with his companions, gloomy and taciturn. He and they had been among the Nevada mountains prospecting for silver and were returning to Salt Lake City in hopes of raising capital enough to work some loads which they had discovered. He had been as keen as any of them upon the business of this sudden incident that had drawn his thoughts into another channel. The sight of the fair young girl, as frank and wholesome as the Sierra breezes, had stirred his volcanic, untamed heart to its very depths. Is it just me or is this book getting like a little saucy? Ooh, his volcanic and untamed heart. For those of you who don't know, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, really wanted to be better known for his poetry than for Sherlock Holmes or Professor Challenger for that matter. When she had vanished from his sight, he realized that a crisis had come into his life, that neither silver speculations nor any questions could ever be of such importance to him as this new and all-absorbing one. The love which had sprung up in his heart was not the sudden, changeable fancy of a boy, but rather the wild, fierce passion of a man of strong will and imperious temper. He had been accustomed to succeed in all that he undertook. He swore in his heart that he would not fail in this, if human effort and human perseverance could render him successful. He called on John Ferrier that night, and many times again, until his face was a familiar one in the farmhouse. John, cooped up in the valley and absorbed in his work, had had little chance of learning the news of the outside world upon the last twelve years. All this Jefferson Hope was able to tell him, and in a style which interested Lucy as well as her father. He had been a pioneer in California and could narrate many a strange tale of fortunes made and fortunes lost in those wild halcyon days. He'd been a scout, too, and a trapper, a silver explorer, and a ranchman. Wherever stirring adventures were to be had, Jefferson Hope had been there in search of them. He soon became a favorite with the old farmer, who spoke eloquently of his virtues. On such occasions, Lucy was silent, but her blushing cheek and her bright, happy eyes showed only too clearly that her young heart was no longer her own. Her honest father may not have been observant to these symptoms, but they were assuredly not thrown away upon the man who had won her affections. It was a summer evening when he came galloping down the road and pulled up at the gate. She was at the doorway and came down to meet him. He threw the bridle over the fence and strode up the pathway. "'I'm off, Lucy,' he said, taking her two hands in his and gazing tenderly down upon her face. "'I won't ask you to come with me now, but will you be ready to come when I'm here again?' "'And when will that be?' she asked, blushing and laughing. "'A couple of months at the outside. I'll come and claim you then, my darling. There's no one who can stand between us.' 
And what about father? She asked. He's given his consent, providing we get these minds working all right. I've got no fear on that head. Oh, well, of course, if you and father have arranged it all, there's no more to be said, she whispered, with her cheek against his broad breast. Thank God, he said hoarsely, stooping and kissing her. It's settled then. The longer I stay, the harder it'll be for me to go. They're waiting for me at the canyon. Goodbye, my own darling. Goodbye. In two months, you shall see me. He tore himself away from her as he spoke, and then, flinging himself upon his horse, galloped furiously away, never even looking around, as though afraid that his resolution might fail him if he took one glance at what he was leaving. She stood at the gate, gazing after him until he vanished from her sight. Then she walked back into the house, the happiest girl in all of Utah. Rose says, I mean, this man wrote this so long ago, without Google, without photos, and he evokes it with a shocking and realistic truth. Uh, and yeah, Orly Rose, I mean, the one place where I would even quibble with him is on some of the coloring, and even that, like, it might just be because I'm imagining a different part of the world than he is, um, but, you know, it's like the, the tone, like some of the stuff, you kind of would have to be there, right? It seems that way. Um, but no, uh, He's got some considerable talent, and I think we can agree, like, I know I said it got saucy. It didn't really get saucy as much as it just got, like, passionate there. And it's it's funny to listen to somebody who, although I guess, I guess there is some overlap here. Um, it's funny to listen to someone who can so, so vibrantly describe the death, the, the slow, uh, s slow, uh, thirsting death of uh, a, a man and his adoptive daughter. It's funny to hear that same person subsequently describe the volcanic passions of this this <laughs> young silver prospector. Orly Rose says, This dude ate some of Quinn, Nessa, and Jem's cheese. And I am... I am not sure what that means. I, I'm going to have to duck back over into the... <laughs> into the server later today. For y'all who are wondering what Orly Rose is talking about, uh, yeah, all the crushes in Recetus. Hey, we're having a good time over there. If y'all are wondering, uh, the realms of Recetus, y'all might have caught uh, our Wednesday campaigns a couple of years ago. Um, the Recetus Arena campaigns. Perhaps you are catching our campaign now. Night School at Vesperal Academy. All of these stories take place in a, uh, a, a world of our own creation. We've been working on it for like almost three years at this point. Um, and don't go away, folks. We've still got two more chapters to read today. Um, but uh, all of these all of these stories ha happen in this one world called the Realms of Recetus. And, uh, well, the Realms of Recetus are now open to you directly. We have got an RP and adventure server uh, over in Discord. We've got its own designated server. You can play your own character. As a matter of fact, with some recent additions, you can play your own characters. Um, you can play... Uh, <laughs> We have got two zones open right now, the Pine Pelican, uh, which is a massive airship undertaking uh, a, a, a momentous voyage 
think along the lines of like Treasure Planet. Um, and then uh, we've recently opened up the Arena Zone. Uh, we haven't had anybody duck in there quite yet, but it was very recent. I know we don't have any like character development going on in there yet, but uh, that was of course the location of our first big campaign here. Uh, and then the next one that's going to be opened up is the site of our current campaign, Vesperal Academy. So if you want to play a recruit on the decks of a uh, of an airship that is flying off into the skies over the realms of Residus, off into the deep skies after we head south through Maelstrom uh, and Storm in Storm Alley. Uh, if you want to play an arena fighter, winning glory for yourself or wherever you come from, join in and uh, make a character over in the arena zone. And then if you would like to play a young Duskin, a young uh, uh, Lycan or vampire or ghost, uh, you can do that and walk the halls and uh, attend your classes at Vesperal Academy and Castle Vesperal. Um, super exciting time over there. We've, you know, we've only had one zone open so far, and even just that has been a ton of fun already. Um, I'm really happy that we did it. I'm really happy that, uh, that I finally opened this up. I was waiting for, like, the perfect time, and as I said before, uh, the perfect time was not showing up, so I just decided to make, make what I could with the time that I've got. Um, and I'm really glad that I decided to do that. So, there we have it, folks. I hope that you will join in, um, even at the very least, just just uh, to take a peek over there. Maybe it's not your thing, but hey, maybe it is, is the thing. You know what I'm saying? If you like writing, if you like uh, RPGs, uh, if you like text-based RP, and if you just like, you know, little stories, little original characters, it's a great way to do that, and it's a lot of fun. Okay, um, let me go ahead and put the links in here. Uh, I gotta refill my water. I'm gonna take a quick five minute break before we move on to our next two chapters here. But the next chapter, John Ferrier talks with the prophet. Are y'all ready? You best get ready. You've got five minutes to do so. I'll be back in five. Bye, folks. Hello, my good folks. How do you do? Welcome back. <laughs> you know what's weird is that uh i i've done like a considerable amount of <laughs> when i tell y'all it's not it's not a like a terrible amount of time it's not an amount of time that would make you uncomfortable to be in the same room as me but i spent kind of an embarrassing amount of time sitting on my phone tapping in collections of characters to try and figure out one that looked like a motorcycle with a sidecar or just a motorcycle whatever and that is the only format that a looks like it and b is sort of communicable right that you could say the words out loud because like Oi equals yo. That one doesn't. That one doesn't roll off nearly as well. But O equals yo. Like that's something. That, <laughs> o equals yo. A. It's totally nonsensical, but it does kind of roll off the tongue, doesn't it? Doesn't it a little bit? Um, but yeah, it's it looks like a motorcycle. So that's our little. That's our little shh. It's called a shibboleth. Um, which when you contrive a shibboleth, I <laughs> don't think it technically counts anymore. But. Um, um, o equals yo is our little, it's our secret sign, all right? It's our secret sign for sidecar fans, all right? <laughs> if, if someone says to you, O equals yo, uh, that means that they are a sidecar stories fan. It probably, is it, is it going to, is it going to catch on? Almost, almost definitely not, but it is fun. 
It looks like a little sidecar, and if you if you say the words out loud, it sounds like you're speaking absolute madness. Uh, but no, it'll it will it's a good way to mark you as a fan of sidecar stories. <laughs> A fan as I am. Uh, Proteus Spade says overtime at work. Ah, but this means uh, this has been uninterrupted. Good. Excellent. Good to have you here. Um, Orly Rose says he's going to scare me. I know it. I'm in Discord with no music. I'm about to be jump scared. I don't think. Did I launch him with a jump scare? Maybe I did a little bit. I probably yeah, I probably did. Um, but everybody, thank you so much for joining me here today. I love y'all. Um, let's proceed on into our next couple of chapters here. We are reading Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. This is our Tuesday show. Currently on Tuesdays, I might be moving it over to a different day. We shall see. Um, right now, Tuesdays have been fairly comfortable, but I would like to condense my streaming into one day a little bit more because I'm back to having zero days off in a week, which can get a little tough over a long period of time. Um, right now... We're in part two. In part one, we have followed uh, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson as John meets Sherlock. Uh, the two of them start to live together, uh, and they investigate this very strange murder mystery, wherein there's lots of blood, but no uh, no stab wound uh, or anything that would indicate the drawing of blood. Um, they proceed on through this. Uh, a couple of the more professional detectives have some wrong theories, and finally, uh, Sherlock catches the perpetrator, and now we're here to ask all of the questions that we have been sort of been simmering with over time. Why did this man, Jefferson Hope, murder this Stangerson and uh, uh, whoever the other fellow is? Um, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but... Um, why Why would this Jefferson Hope murder these two people? What's with the ring? What's going on here? Um, and how did Sherlock know all of this and then subsequently get his hands on Jefferson Hope and get him to sort of come up for Sherlock's luggage? What's he doing in London? What are all of them doing in London? Very strange. In part two, we head across the seas. In almost a non sequitur, it's just like a hard cut to the <laughs> the American West. Um, we follow John Ferrier. Uh, he and a uh, a little girl who are the only two remaining from their party of twenty one crossing the desert. Uh, they are dying in the desert, and just before then, they are rescued by an enormous wagon train of Mormons led by none other than Brigham Young himself. Brig Brigham 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 Young. These Mormons uh, head across, they rescue these two on the condition that they will be Mormons from now until the end of their days. Bit of a time lapse here. John Ferrier, this man who uh, adopted this girl in the desert, um, uh, so he and his daughter uh, are, are living here with the Mormons in Salt Lake City. Um, John Ferrier has done very well for himself. He's a hardworking man. He's got a lot of endurance uh, and it makes him one of the wealthiest men in the area. Uh, you know, everyone, it says everyone sort of from here to the West Coast knows who John Ferrier is. Um, and uh, he's done well in the eyes of his, his uh, these other Mormons here as well. Uh, sort of living up to his promise that he will indeed adhere to uh, their faith if he is to accompany them, uh, if he is to be rescued by them. An interesting condition of saving someone's life. It's a little bit like torture. I think, uh, yeah, of course he's going to say yes to a question like that. The one thing is that he has not taken a wife. 
or wives, as is the custom among the Mormons. Um, that that gets uh, some people kind of frustrated. But um, no matter, he's done well in other regards. Um, his daughter, Lucy, has now grown up, uh, and she suddenly meets a man. Uh, lots of people are traveling through Salt Lake City on their track out toward the west, uh, toward the gold rush in California, and she meets a, uh, a silver prospector named Jefferson Hope, a name that we might recognize. They fall in love. It seems that uh, uh, Farrier, John Farrier, uh, uh, is is all right with it. He gives his blessing, and now we find ourselves heading on into chapter three. John Farrier talks with the prophet. Where we are currently left off. Um, uh, uh, Jefferson Hope is headed back to sort of get his silver mines in order um, as the sort of final provision. Just, just I mean, it, it makes sense for John Ferry to say, look, once you've got your silver mines in order, then then you can marry my daughter, right? Uh, this is this is a matter of stability. It's a matter of you know sending off his daughter with uh, someone who he believes can actually ensure she won't starve to death out here in the West. Um, so. Uh, and this is not this is not me condoning the like father handing off daughter thing, but this is me saying, if if uh, if they are to rely on John Ferrier's judgment for this, John Ferrier's judgment I think is a good one here for the for the preservation of his daughter's life. So now we commence, chapter three. How does it all go wrong? Chapter 3. John Ferrier Talks with the Prophet Three weeks had passed since Jefferson Hope and his comrades had departed from Salt Lake City. John Ferrier's heart was sore within him when he thought of the young man's return and the impending loss of his adopted child. And yet, her bright and happy face reconciled him to the arrangement more than any argument could have done. He had always determined, deep down in his resolute heart, that nothing would ever induce him to allow his daughter to wed a Mormon. Such a marriage he regarded as no marriage at all, but as a shame and a disgrace. Whatever he might think of the Mormon doctrines, upon that one point he was inflexible. He had to steal his mouth on the subject, however, for to express an unorthodox opinion was a dangerous matter in those days in the land of saints. Yes, a dangerous matter. So dangerous that even the most saintly dared only to whisper their religious opinions with bated breath, lest something which fell from their lips might be misconstrued and bring down a swift retribution upon them. The victims of persecution had now turned persecutors on their own account, and the persecutors of the most terrible description. Not the Inquisition of Seville, nor the German Wemgericht, or the secret societies of Italy were ever able to put a more formidable machinery in motion than that which cast a cloud over the state of Utah. Its invisibility and the mystery which was attached to it made this organization doubly terrible. It appeared to be omniscient and omnipotent, and yet was neither seen nor heard. The man who held out against the church vanished away, and none knew whether he had gone or what had befallen him. 
His wife and children awaited him at home, but no father ever returned to tell them how he had fared at the hands of his secret judges. A rash word or a hasty act was followed by annihilation. And yet none knew what the nature might be of this terrible power which was suspended over them. No wonder that men went about in fear and trembling, and that even in the heart of the wilderness they dared not to whisper the doubts which oppressed them. At first this vague and terrible power was exercised only upon the recalcitrants who, having embraced the Mormon faith, wished afterward to pervert or to abandon it. Soon, however, it took a wider range. The supply of adult women was running short, and polygamy, without a female population on which to draw, was a barren doctrine indeed. Strange rumors began to be bandied about. Rumors of murdered immigrants and rifled camps in regions where natives had never been seen. Fresh women appeared in the harems of elders, women who pined and wept and bore upon their faces the traces of an inextinguishable horror. Belated wanderers upon the mountains spoke of gangs of armed men, masked, stealthy, and noiseless, who flitted by them in the darkness. These tales and rumors took substance and shape, and were corroborated and re-corroborated until they resolved themselves into a definite name. To this day, in the lonely ranches of the West, the name of the Danite Band, or the Avenging Angels, is a sinister and an ill-omened one. Fuller knowledge of the organization, which produced such terrible results, served to increase rather than to lessen the horror which it inspired in the minds of men. None knew who belonged to this ruthless society. The names of the participators in the deeds of blood and violence done under the name of religion were kept profoundly secret. The very friend to whom you communicated your misgivings as the prophet and his mission might be one of those who would come forth at night with fire and sword to exact a terrible reparation. Hence, every man feared his neighbor, and none spoke of the things which were nearest his heart. One fine morning, John Ferrier was about to set out to his wheat fields when he heard the click of a latch, and looking through his window saw a stout, sandy-haired, middle-aged man coming up the pathway. His heart leapt up into his mouth, for this was none other than the great Brigham Young himself. Full of trepidation, for he knew that such a visit boded him little good, Ferrier ran to the door to meet the Mormon chief. The latter, however, received his salutations coldly, and followed him with a stern face to the sitting room. Brother Ferrier, he said, taking a seat and eyeing the farmer keenly from under his light-colored eyelashes. The true believers have been good friends to you. We picked you up when you were starving in the desert. We shared our food with you. Led you safe to the Chosen Valley, gave you a goodly share of the land, and allowed you to wax rich under our protection. Is this not so? It is so, answered John Ferrier. In return for all this, we asked but one condition. That was that you should embrace the true faith and conform in every way to its usages. This you promised to do, and this, if common report says truly, you have neglected. And now have I neglected it, said Ferrier, throwing out his hands in expostulation. Have I not given to the common fund? Have I not attended at the temple? Have I not? Where are your wives? asked Young, looking at him. 
Call him in, that I can greet him. It's true that I've never married, Farrier answered, but women were few, and there were many who had better claims than I. I was not a lonely man. I had my daughter to attend to my wants. It is of that daughter that I would like to speak to you, said the leader of the Mormons. She has grown to be the flower of Utah, and has drawn favor in the eyes of many who are high in the land. John Ferrier groaned internally. There are stories of her which I would fain disbelieve, stories that she is sealed to some Gentile. This must be the gossip of idle tongues. What is the thirteenth rule in the code of the sainted Joseph Smith? Let every maiden of the true faith marry one of the elect, for if she is to wed a Gentile, she commits a grievous sin. This being so, it is impossible that you who profess the holy creed should suffer your daughter to violate it. John Ferrier made no answer, but he played nervously with his riding whip. Upon this one point, your whole faith shall be tested. So it has been decided in the sacred council of four. The girl is young, and we would not have her wed gray hairs. Neither would we deprive her of all choice. We elders have many heifers, but our children must also be provided. Stangerson has a son, and Drebber has a son. And either of them will gladly welcome your daughter into their house. Let her choose between them. They're young and rich, and of the true faith. What say you to that? Ferrier remained silent for some little time, with his brows knitted. You have to give us time, he said at last. My daughter is very young. She's scarce of an age to marry. She shall have a month to choose, said Jan, rising from his seat. At the end of that time, she shall give her answer. He was passing through the door when he turned and with flushed face and flashing eyes. It were better for you, John Ferrier, he thundered. That you and she were now lying blanched skeletons upon the Sierra Blanco than that you should put your weak wills against the orders of the Holy Four. With a threatening gesture of his hand, he turned from the door and Farrier heard his heavy step crunching upon the shiny path. He was still sitting with his elbows upon his knees, considering how he should broach the matter to his daughter when a soft hand was laid upon his, and looking up he saw her standing beside him. One glance at her pale, frightened face showed him that she had heard what had passed. "'I couldn't help it,' she said, in answer to his look. His voice rang through the house. "'Oh, Father, what shall we do?' "'Don't you scare yourself,' he answered, drawing her to him and passing his broad, rough hand caressingly over her chestnut hair. "'We'll fix it up somehow or another.' You don't find your fancy kind of lessening for this chap, do you? A sob and a squeeze of his hand was her only answer. No, of course not. I shouldn't care to hear that you did. 
he's a likely lad. And he's a Christian, which is more than most of these folks here, in spite of all their praying and preaching. There's a party starting for Nevada tomorrow. And I'll manage to send him a message letting him know what the hole is we're in. If I know anything of that young man, he'll be back here with a speed that could whip electro-telegraphs. Lucy laughed through her tears at her father's description. When he comes. Uh, let's see. When he comes, he'll advise us for the best. But it's for you that I'm frightened. One hears such dreadful stories about them who oppose the prophet. Something terrible always happens to him. But we haven't opposed him yet, her father answered. It will be time to look out for squalls when we do. We have a clear month before us. At the end of that, I guess we better shin out of Utah. Leave Utah? That's about the size of it. But the farm? We'll raise as much money as we can. Let the rest go. To tell the truth, Lucy, this isn't the first time I've thought about doing it. I don't care about knuckling under to any man, as these folk do to their darn prophet. I'm a free-born American, and it's all new to me. Guess I'm too old to learn. If he comes browsing about this farm, he might run up against a charge of buckshot, travel in the opposite direction. But they won't let us leave, his daughter objected. You wait till Jefferson comes. We'll soon manage that. In the meantime, don't you fret yourself, dearie. Don't get your eyes welled up, else he'll be walking into me when he sees you. There's nothing to be afeard about. There's no danger at all. John Ferrier uttered these consoling remarks in a very confident tone. But she could not help observing that he paid unusual care to the fastening of the doors that night, and that he carefully cleaned and loaded the rusty old shotgun which hung above the walls of his bedroom. There you have it, folks. Chapter three out of four for today. Um, the last chapter that we're going to be reading today is titled A Flight for Life. Get yourself excited. Uh, Gems, hello and welcome. Gwen Dog, good to have you here. Uh, Vish, Jade, y'all. Y'all. And of course, now y'all is ever more appropriate because we are... Uh, not just in the U.S., but we're in sort of the western U.S., the, the American Southwest. I'm, I'm sure there are regionalists who would disagree with me on that definition, but uh, look, that's where you're at. Sorry. Utah, Salt Lake City, and we find that John Ferrier, this man who has lived for so long uh, and prospered in, this, prospered in this land, we find that he is not really a devout Mormon. No, he, he is made his fortunes here but he's ready to go at any time he says we'll stir up as much money as we can we'll get out of utah i've been th I've, I've thought about it before and uh i'll be damned if i'm gonna let you marry a mormon he uh he's got he, he thinks that jefferson hope is a, 
a, a good fellow for his for his adopted daughter to marry. Um, and uh, yeah, we are finding that this whole Mormon thing doesn't really check out with him. Uh, he'll live in the territory, and that's all fine and dandy. But the rest of this, no, no, no. Now it's kind of funny, right? Remember, remember our um, our friend here, Sid the Mystery Squid. Ta-da! Remember Sid? Um, well, Sid's got three long legs, right? And those three long legs are one, material evidence, two, persons of interest, and three, the wider world. Think about how infrequently we spend time with the wider world, right? Um, you know, the, the wider world, this is a, a consideration that we've talked about. Like, what events are happening in the wider world? Um, certain, like the, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes stories... Those kind of, those duck into that third uh, Sid the Mystery Squid leg, uh, kind of with with some frequency. Um, uh, there are other mystery stories that spend very very little time on it. Uh, you know the uh, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. We spent very little time with that particular leg. Uh, we spent you know. <sighs> Hercule Paro, he loves the persons of interest side of things. He doesn't mind dealing with the physical evidence side of things. And we spent very little time with the wider world, the sort of context within some of these things, uh, excuse me, within which some of these things are happening. Now we're in part two, which as far as I can tell, seems to be an entire section of some persons of interest mixed in with a, a big stew of... The world at large, world events, what's happening out there in the world, how different social political elements of the world and different parts of the world are having an impact on this one specific mystery. Orly Rose says, what an exemplary portrayal of a father canon of a father Conan Doyle has created. There we go. I read it correctly that time, uh, especially for the time and the generation that he lived in. It's wonderful. After the next chapter, I'll say the rest of my thoughts on this and where he takes it. Um, yeah, so yeah, this this, this uh, John Ferrier, right? He is he's a good father, right? He has, um, and uh, again, we're not discussing the the merits of the like uh, give your daughter away tradition, um, uh, but if it is the one that uh, if it is the tradition that that this family and this this world observes uh you know he is he is at least judging rightly by it right he's he's trying to do right by that tradition he's not you know trying to use it to make you know political or or wealth gains for himself or anything like that no he he wants his daughter to be married to someone who will keep her safe will keep her provided for uh and who will uh <laughs> who will be um a a good husband to her um this is study in scarlet gems um, yeah, it's something that, uh, that, uh, I feel like I, I have to, um, you know, note when it comes up, but yeah, um, <laughs> or the rose says Mormonism, Mormonism aside, no father really let their daughter be this free and so respected. Yeah, I, I guess I, I suppose it wouldn't surprise me if there were some few and far between, but overall, like, yeah, this is not what this time was known for. Certainly. Right, the the rule is far and away. Uh, it seems like uh, it seems like most of the people in this area, uh, whether out of um, religious uh, fervor or out of fear, would have simply said, "Look, they're causing all sorts of trouble to me. Um, you got to just marry who they want you to marry, Lucy." But no, no, 
not in the least. Not for John Ferrier, not for Lucy Ferrier, not for Jefferson Hope. And yet, we know we've got a month here. We've got one month for Lucy to decide. And based on the title of this next chapter, I guess that month doesn't go well. Chapter 4, A Flight for Life. On the morning which followed his interview with the Mormon prophet, John Ferrier went into Salt Lake City, and having found his acquaintance, who was bound from the Nevada mountains, he entrusted him with his message to Jefferson Hope. It was he who told the young man of the imminent danger which threatened them, and how necessary it should be that he would return. Having done this, he felt easier in his mind, and returned home with a lighter heart. As he approached his farm, he was surprised to see a horse hitched to each of the posts of his gate. Still more surprising was that he, upon entering, found two young men in possession of his sitting room. One, with a long, pale face, was leaned back in the rocking chair, with his feet cocked up on the stove. The other, a bull-necked youth with coarse, bloated features, was standing in front of the window with hands in his pockets, whistling a popular hymn. Both of them nodded to Ferrier as he entered and the one in the rocking chair commenced the conversation. "'Maybe you don't know us,' he said. "'This here is the son of Elder Drebber, and I'm Joseph Stangerson, who traveled with you in the desert when the Lord stretched out his hand and gathered you into the true fold.' "'As he will with all the nations in his own good time,' said the other in a nasal voice. He grindeth slowly, but exceedingly small. John Ferrier bowed coldly. He had guessed who his visitors were. We have come, continued Stangerson, at the advice of our fathers to solicit the hand of your daughter, for whichever of us may seem good to you and to her. As I have but four wives, and Brother Drebber has seven, it appears to me that my claim is the stronger one. Nay, Brother Stangerson, cried the other. The question's not how many wives we have, but how many we can keep. My father's now given over his meals to me, and I am the richer man. But my prospects are better, said the other warmly. When the Lord removes my father, I shall have his tanning yard and his leather factory. Then I am your elder. And I am higher in the church. It'll be for the maiden to decide, rejoined young Drebber, smirking at his own reflection in the glass. We will have to leave it all to her decision. During this dialogue, John Ferrier stood fuming in the doorway, hardly able to keep his riding whip from the backs of his two visitors. Look here, he said at last, striding up to them. When my daughter summons you, you can come, and until then I don't want to see your faces again. The two young Mormons stared at him in amazement. In their eyes, this competition between them for the maiden's hand was the highest of honors both to her and her father. There are two ways out of this room, cried Ferrier. There's the door and there's the window. Which do you care to use? 
His brown face looked so savage and his gaunt hands so threatening that his visitors sprang to their feet and beat a hurried retreat. The old farmer followed them to the door. Let me know when you've settled which it is to be, he said sardonically. You shall smart for this, Stangerson cried, white with rage. You have defied the prophet and the council of the four. You shall rue it to the end of your days. The hand of the Lord will be heavy upon you, cried young Drebber. He will arise and smite you. Then I'll start the smiting, exclaimed Ferrier furiously, and would have rushed upstairs for his gun had not Lucy seized him by the arm and restrained him. Before he could escape from her, the clatter of horses' hooves told him they were beyond his reach. Hey, young canting rascals, he exclaimed, wiping the perspiration from his forehead. I'd rather see you in your grave, my girl, than the wife of either one of them. And so should I, father, she answered with spirit. But Jefferson will soon be here. Yes. It won't be long before he comes. The sooner the better, for we do not know what their next move may be. It was indeed high time that someone capable of giving advice and help should come to the aid of the sturdy old farmer and his adopted daughter. In the whole history of the settlement there had never been such a case of rank disobedience to the authority of the elders. If minor errors were punished so sternly, what would become the fate of this arch-rebel? Ferrier knew that his wealth and position would be of no avail to him. Others, as well known and as rich as himself, had been spirited away before now, and their goods given over to the church. He was a brave man, but he trembled at the vague, shadowy terrors which hung over him. Any known danger he could face with a firm lip, but this suspense was unnerving. He concealed his fears from his daughter, however, and affected to make light of the whole matter, though she, with the keen eye of love, saw plainly that he was ill at ease. He expected he would receive some message or remonstrance from Young as to his conduct, and he was not mistaken, though it came in an unlooked-for manner. Upon rising the next morning, he found, to his surprise, a small square of paper pinned to the coverlet of his bed just over his chest. On it was printed in bold, straggling letters, Twenty-nine days are given to you for amendment, and then... And there followed a long dash. The dash was more fear-inspiring than any threat could have been. How this warning came into this room puzzled John Ferrier sorely, for his servants slept in an outhouse, and the doors and windows had all been secured. He crumpled the paper up and said nothing to his daughter, but the incident struck a chill to his heart. The twenty-nine days were evidently the balance of the month which Jung had promised. What strength or courage could avail against an enemy armed with such a mysterious power? The hand which fastened that pin might have struck him to the heart, and he never would have known who had slain him. Still more shaken was he the next morning. They had sat down to their breakfast when Lucy, with a cry of surprise, pointed upward. In the center of the ceiling was scrawled, with a burned stick apparently, the number twenty-eight. To his daughter it was unintelligible, and he did not enlighten her. That night he sat up with his gun and kept watch and ward. He saw and heard nothing. And yet in the morning a great twenty-seven had been painted upon the outside of his door.
Thus, day followed day. And sure as morning came, he found that his unseen enemies had kept their register, and had marked up in some conspicuous position how many days were still left to him out of the month of grace. Sometimes the fatal numbers appeared upon the walls, sometimes upon the floors. Occasionally they were on small placards struck upon the garden gate or the railings. With all his vigilance, John Ferrier could not discover whence these daily warnings proceeded. A horror which was almost superstitious came upon him at the sight of them. He became haggard and restless, and his eyes had the troubled look of some haunted creature. He had but one hope in life now, and that was for the arrival of the young hunter from Nevada. Twenty had changed to fifteen, and fifteen to ten, but there was still no news of the absentee. One by one, the numbers dwindled down, and there came no sight of him. Whenever a horseman clattered up and down the road, or a driver shouted at his team, the old farmer hurried to the gate, thinking that help had arrived at last. At last, when he saw five give way to four, and that again to three, he lost heart, and abandoned all hope of escape. Single-handed. And with his limited knowledge of the mountains which surrounded the settlement, he knew that he was powerless. More frequented roads were strictly watched and guarded, and none could pass along them without an order from the council. Turn which way he would, there appeared to be no avoiding the blow which hung over him. Yet the old man never wavered in his resolution to part with life itself before he consented to what he regarded as his daughter's dishonor. He was sitting alone one evening pondering deeply over his troubles and searching vainly for some way out of them. That morning had shown the figure two upon the wall of his house, and the next day would be the last of the allotted time. What was to happen then? All manner of vague and terrible fancies filled his imagination, and his daughter... His daughter, what was to become of her after he was gone? Was there no escape from the invisible network which was drawn all around them? He sank his head upon the table and sobbed at the thought of his own impotence. What was that? In the silence he heard a gentle scratching sound, low but very distinct in the quiet of the night. It came from the door of the house. Ferrier crept into the hall and listened intently. There was a pause for a few moments, and the low, insidious sound was repeated. Someone was evidently tapping very gently upon one of the panels of the door. Was it some midnight assassin who had come to carry out the murderous orders of the secret tribunal? Or was it some agent who was marking up that last day of grace that had arrived? John Ferrier felt that instant death would be better than the suspense which shook his nerves and chilled his heart. Springing forward, he drew the bolt open and threw the door. Outside, all was calm and quiet. The night was fine, and the stars were twinkling brightly overhead. The little front garden lay before the farmer's eyes, bounded by the fence and gate, but neither there nor on the road was any human being seen. With a great sigh of relief, Ferrier looked to the right and to the left, until, happening to glance straight down at his feet, he saw to his astonishment a man lying flat upon his face on the ground, with arms and legs all asprawl. 
So unnerved was the sight that he leaned against the wall with his hand to his throat to stifle the inclination to call out. His first thought was that the prostrate figure was that of some wounded or dying man, but as he watched it, he saw it writhe along the ground and into the hall with the rapidity and noiselessness of a serpent. Once within the house, the man sprang to his feet, closed the door, and revealed to the astonished farmer the fierce face and resolute expression of Jefferson Hope. "'Good God!' gasped John Ferrier. "'How you scared me! Whatever made you come in like that?' "'Give me food,' the other said hoarsely. "'I've had no time for a bite or sup for eight and forty hours.' He flung himself upon the cold meat and bread which were still lying upon the table from the host's supper and devoured it voraciously. "'Does Lucy bear up well?' he asked when he had satisfied his hunger. "'Yes. She does not know the danger,' her father answered. "'That's well.' The house is watched on every side. That's why I crawled my way up to it. They may be darn sharp, but they're not quite sharp enough to catch a Washoe hunter. John Ferrier felt a different man now that he realized he had a devoted ally. He seized the young man's leathery hand and wrung it cordially. You're a man to be proud of, he said. There are not many who would come to share our dangers and our troubles. You've hit it there, part, the young hunter answered. I've got a respect for you, but if you were alone in this business, I'd think twice before I put my head into such a hornet's nest. It's Lucy that brings me here, and before harm comes upon her, I guess there will be one less of the Hope family in Utah. What are we to do? Tomorrow is your last day, and unless you act tonight, you're lost. I have a mule and two horses waiting in the Eagle Ravine. How much money have you got? Two thousand dollars in gold and five in notes. That'll do. I've got as much more to add to it. We must push for Carson City through the mountains. You'd best wake Lucy. It's well that the servants do not sleep in the house. While Ferrier was absent preparing his daughter for the approaching journey, Jefferson Hope packed all the eatables that he could find into a small parcel and filled a stoneware jar with water, for he knew by experience that the mountain wells were few and far between. He had hardly completed his arrangements before the farmer returned with his daughter, all dressed and ready for a start. The greeting between the lovers was warm but brief, for minutes were precious, and there was much to be done. "'We must make our start at once,' said Jefferson Hope, speaking in a low but resolute voice, like one who guesses the greatness of his peril, but has steeled his heart to meet it. "'The front and the back entrances are washed, but with caution we might get away through the side window and across the fields.' Once on the road, we're only two miles from the ravine where the horses are waiting. By daybreak, we should be halfway through the mountains. What if we're stopped? asked Ferrier. Hope slapped the revolver butt, which protruded from the front of his tunic. If there are too many for us, we shall take two or three of them with us, he said with a sinister smile. The lights outside the house had all been extinguished and from the darkened window Ferrier peered over the fields which had once been his own, and which he was now to abandon forever. He had long nerved himself to the sacrifice, however, and the thought of the honor and happiness of his and the thought of the honor and happiness of his daughter outweighed any regret at his ruined fortunes. All looked so peaceful and happy. The rustling trees and the broad, silent stretch of grain land, that it was difficult to realize that the spirit of murder lurked through it all. 
yet the white face and set expression of the young hunter showed that in his approach to the house he had seen enough to satisfy him on that head. Ferrier carried the bag of gold and notes. Jefferson Hope had the scanty provisions and water, and Lucy had a small bundle containing a few of her most valuable possessions. Opening the window very slowly and carefully, they waited until a dark cloud had somewhat obscured the night, and then one by one passed through into the little garden. With bated breath and crouching figures, they stumbled across it, and gained the shelter of a hedge, which they skirted along until they came to a gap which opened into the cornfields. They had just reached this point when the young man seized his two companions and dragged them down in shadow, where they lay silent and trembling. It was well that his prairie training had given Jefferson Hope the ears of a lynx. He and his friends were hardly crouched down before the melancholy hooting of a mountain owl was heard within a few yards of them, which was immediately answered by another hoot at a small distance. At the same moment, a vague, shadowy figure emerged from the gap for which they had been making, and uttered the plaintive signal cry again on which a second man appeared out of the obscurity. "'Tomorrow at midnight,' said the first who appeared to be in authority, "'when the whippoorwill calls three times.' "'It is well,' returned the other. "'What shall I tell Brother Dreber? "'Pass it on to him, and from him to the others. Nine to seven. Seven to five,' repeated the other, "'and the two figures flitted away in different directions.' Their concluding words had evidently been some form of sign and countersign. The instant that their footsteps had died away in the distance, Jefferson Hope sprang to his feet and helped his companions through the gap, led the way across the fields at the top of his speed and supporting and half carrying the girl when her strength appeared to fail her. Hurry on, hurry on, he gasped from time to time. We're through the line of sentinels. Everything depends on speed. Come on. Once on the high road, they made rapid progress. Only once did they meet anyone, and they managed to slip into a field and so to avoid recognition. Before reaching the town, the hunter branched away into a rugged and narrow footpath which led to the mountains. Two dark, jagged peaks loomed above them in the darkness, and the defile which led them was the Eagle Canyon, in which the horses were waiting for them. With unerring instinct, Jefferson Hope picked his way among the great boulders and along the bed of a dried-up watercourse until he came to the retired corner, screened with rocks, where the faithful animals had been picketed. The girl was placed upon the mule and old farrier upon one of the old horses, with his money bag, while Jefferson Hope led the other along the precipitous and dangerous path. It was a bewildering route for anyone who was not accustomed to face nature in her wildest moods. On the one side, a great crag towered up to a thousand feet or more, black, stern, and menacing, with long basaltic columns upon its rugged surface like the ribs of some petrified monster. On the other side, a wild chaos of boulders and debris made all advance impossible. Between the two ran the irregular track, so narrow in places they had to travel in single file and so rough that only practiced riders could have traversed it at all. Yet in spite of all the dangers and difficulties, the hearts of the fugitives were light within them, for every step increased the distance between them and the terrible despotism from which they were flying. They soon had proof, however, that they were still within the jurisdiction of the saints. They had reached the very wildest and most desolate portion of the pass when the girl gave a startled cry and pointed upward. Upon a rock which overhung the track, showing out dark and plain against the sky, there stood a solitary sentinel. 
He saw them as soon as they perceived him and his military challenge of, Who goes there? rang through the silent ravine. Travelers for Nevada, said Jefferson Hope, with his hand upon the rifle slung by his saddle. He could see the lonely watcher fingering his gun and peering down at them as if dissatisfied at their reply. And by whose permission? he asked. The Holy Four, answered Ferrier. His Mormon experiences had taught him that that was the highest authority which he could refer. Nine from seven, cried the sentinel. Seven from five, returned Jefferson Hope promptly, remembering the countersign he had heard in the garden. Pass, and let the Lord go with you, said the voice from up above. Beyond his post, the path broadened out, and the horses were able to break into a trot. Looking back, they could see the solitary watcher leaning upon his gun and knew that they had passed the outlying post of the chosen people, and that freedom lay out before them. Alright, there you have it, folks. There we have it indeed. Yes, a cliffhanger. And unfortunately, I'm going to hang this I'm gonna hang you I'm gonna dangle y'all a little bit further down off this cliff here. The next chapter is titled The Avenging Angels. The Danite Gang. Watch out. It's a dangerous place out here. Folks, thank you so much for joining me here today. My name is Sam. This is, of course, Sidecar Stories. This being our Tuesday show currently, but uh, ultimately, you can just know it by Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. If you are looking for back episodes of this and some of the other things that we have read, go ahead and look for Vintage Sidecar, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Right now, um, you know, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, um, you should be able to find all of the back episodes of this that have been edited and put up there. Uh, I've done a pretty good job with this one uh, overall. Did a pretty good job with all my uploads, frankly. You know what? Now that I think about it, I've, I've had a real struggle with, uh, with my with a particular episode this last week, so I'm just going to go ahead and and uh, acknowledge for myself, I've done a pretty good job with all this editing. There's a lot of editing to be done throughout the week. I do I do like three, three and a half, four shows every single week, uh, and each one is multiple hours long, and I do all that editing stone cold solo. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've been getting all those up online, and, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that. So I done did the thing. I've innovated. Uh, Y'all might see little little red and blue flags appear at the corner of my screen. Those are my edit notes and uh, my, my little editing system. Uh, well, I'm pretty proud of developing it. It makes the pre-pro process, uh, I guess the, the, the first pass for editing a lot easier. <sighs> There's no way. There's no. If I were still editing like I did in the old days, uh, which was like scrubbing through for every individual little issue, there's no chance I could do it. Okay, uh, I actually have to. It is 4:30 right now. I got a duck. So everybody, um, that is it for today. That's right. We're editing it quickly. Um, let's see. The Adventurers Pack is currently online. Uh, they're playing Hollow Knight. O equals yo. O equals yo, gang. Um, Head on back here tomorrow. We're playing RPGs. The next day, we're reading Lord of the Rings. If you want to join in with this raid, you don't have to press anything. Just hold tight, and we're going to head on over there. Remember, O equals yo. 
O equals yo, capitalize that Y. Everybody, thank you so much for joining me here. I will see you later on. Bye-bye.